The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. But remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on a platform of your choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, Joanna Cavanna. The acquisition of knowledge has been a central factor driving advance. And since Descartes, Western thought has placed the question of what we know and how we know what we know at the centre of philosophy. But might this focus on knowledge be a mistake? Feminist and postmodernist critics argue that in seeking to validate knowledge, philosophers have merely sought to justify their own interests and prejudices. Instead, they argue all knowledge is limited by perspective, whether by culture, class, gender, race, or the many other factors that influence understanding. Should we therefore give up the idea that our beliefs can provide us with objective knowledge? Should we reject epistemology as an attempt to elevate and make undeniable our particular perspective, interests, and prejudices? and focus instead on the consequences of adopting a given framework of belief? Or is knowledge essential to culture? And the notion that beliefs might be definitively true, vital to progress. So here we have a very knowledgeable quorum of speakers to unpack this question today. On to our speakers, Tommy Curry here is a philosophy professor and author of The Man Not, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. We have Suchitra Sebastian, who is an award-winning professor of physics at Cambridge University, best known for her discoveries of exotic quantum phenomena that emerge in complex materials, and she will explain that in further detail. And Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist, author, and researcher, and the author of books such as The Science Delusion and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. So the format for the debate is in a moment, I will present each of our discussants with a question, give them three minutes each to set out their initial ideas. And then we'll have a debate roughly divided into three sections, which I will signal as we go through. So to turn to the initial question, and Suchitra, I'll start with you on this question. Has Western thought been right to focus on what we know and how we know what we know? Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah. uh, So in talking about knowledge, uh, I'm an experimental physicist. And for me, the question of knowing is the question rather than the one of knowledge, because knowledge is not something that is static. And the process of knowing is a continual grasping at something that is always beyond. Um, 
It's an infinite unknown that we are seeking to grasp. And one of the ways in which I think it's been um, spoken about quite eloquently is that when Anne Carson uh, in Eros the Bittersweet talks about um, at the moment of desire, you are stirred to reach beyond perceptible edges towards something else, something not yet grasped, the unplucked apple, the beloved just out of touch, the meaning not quite attained are desirable objects of knowledge. And so I think rather than talking about knowledge as a static, finite, noble entity, I would rather talk about knowing as a continual quest that has no finite end point. It's, an, it's a process of approaching infinity, and as one approaches infinity, so for, an infinite unknown, so, for example, I'm an experimental physicist, and when I do experiments, it is with the certainty that what I find will invariably upend whatever I thought I knew, whatever the field thought it knew. And when something new is uncovered, that's when there's a moment of, you could call it knowing or unknowing, as it were, but that moment is only going to be a portal to an even more infinite unknown. So it's not an infinity of unknown that you're in some way making progress towards reducing the quantum that we don't know. It's not a finite knowledge pool that in some way we're attempting to attain and the objective knowledge is some entity that once we attain it will be done and we can write a theory of everything and be happy. It's a continual questing. And it's a wild ride where we don't know what we're about to find. And that, I think, is the essence of the quest. And just to um, finish up, I would also say that I think an issue with Western ways of knowing in science as well is that it's thought about as mastery or control. And knowing something is thought to have conquered it in the same way as conquest or an imperial um, conquest where, say, Columbus found America as though it didn't exist before. Or Julius Caesar said of Britain, it may be said that Britain didn't exist until I laid eyes on it. And I think science is done in very much a similar way that the first person to come across a phenomena becomes the owner of it. And I think what I would... Um, strongly push back is that phenomena exist and the knowing is a mutual, it's an encounter where we're grasping and there's a back and forth rather than knowing being a conquest and a mastery. And that I think is critical in the experimentation, in the discovery. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'll now turn to Tommy Curry with the same question. Tommy, has Western thought been right to focus on what we know and how we know what we know? Thank you. Uh, I, think, I think one of the problems that we have inevitably when asking these sorts of questions is that we take Western knowledge and Western philosophy as perhaps the only venue through which we believe we can know something. Uh, and by dislocating knowledge very much into a process, right, something that we're trying to grasp or truly understand the conditions or context by which we find something like a fact or find information that we see is repetitive and understand patterns of what we call reality 
uh, we understand that that's not fixed, that it's not static. We're trying to grasp not only to what we take of being true, but the conditions that birth and lead to the demise of what we think truth is. So in Western thought, that idea of what's undoubtable, that's what's always forever, has been fundamentally tied to the notion of the human or who has the rational mind. And that's the incorrect way, in my view, to view something because it assumes that the correct reason, the correct rationality, the correct method or process leads you to that kind of chasm that's filled up with all the knowledge that you're getting magical access to. Rather than seeing it as a co-authoring process of reality, one, as you said, of kind of infinite discovery. So the process by which we come to know doesn't happen specifically because we're rational or because we're scientific. Rather, it's trying to find those repetitions and patterns that seem to hold in a given context or condition. That's what we're aiming for, and that's always subject to change. What Descartes was thinking, you know, in his philosophy, the cogito, the, the idea that there is one kind of mind, one kind of condition, one kind of philosophy or epistemology that's given and that's by which we proceed, that excludes other forms of knowledge, other ways of knowing. So what's been fundamentally tied to Western epistemology has been the idea that once we know a fact, it's known because we're the right type of being to know it, and then all others who do not arise at that fact or know that fact are lesser beings. That's the problem of the Western metaphysical tradition that excludes and allows us to not have this perspective of unfolding, of becoming our infinite grasping. So when asking the question of how we think about knowledge and whether or not one should try to find both what we know and focus on the ways by which we know it, we have to be very, very aware that that question itself presupposes that the Western tradition is the only one that has done so. And the Western tradition, being one of many other cultures and perspectives, has made the error not of trying to find out what knowledge is or how we go about knowing it, but presupposing that it's the only culture to do so. So all these other ways, all these other processes, all these other perspectives where knowledge is something that we're trying to grasp and see as tentative and limited, those things have to be taken into consideration as well. So the Western tradition is not wrong in trying to find out what we know or how we know it. It's wrong as assuming that it's the only tradition that can. Great. Thank you very much, Kenneth. Thank you. Thank you. And Rupert, I'll turn to you with a question again. Has Western thought been right to focus on what we know and how we know what we know? My three points are that knowledge is inherently reductive. So-called objective knowledge is inherently reductive. We reduce things to numbers, to two-dimensional diagrams, or to kinematic representations like films. And if you look at scientific papers, they're all about numbers, diagrams, and sometimes in the supplementary material that you can look at online, films but which are two-dimensional, of course. So there's something inherently reductive in scientific knowledge. Secondly, um, scientific knowledge is not anything like as objective as most scientists would like to think. First, because there's prejudices that shape what scientists can look at, the paradigms, the orthodoxy, uh, uh, para uh, shape what you can do, what kind of research you can do, what you can get funded, and what you can get published. And the third point is that there are deeper forms of knowing, uh, which Plato uh, wrote about in Western philosophy, there's a realm of intuition that goes to the eternal forms or ideas. There are mystical insights or intuitions uh, which are shared in with the great mystical traditions in the Sufi tradition, the Indian tra tradition, the Christian mystical tradition, and others, and the Buddhist tradition. 
which are directly known through conscious experience. The Buddha's enlightenment wasn't a fact in a, in a textbook or something. It was a direct experience. And we all have direct experiences, which are probably the most important form of knowing for us, at least in shaping our own lives. Great. So that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll look a little more in this first area of the debate at this question then of what objective knowledge is. And if we're, I think everybody in a way agrees that no one's making a very, very strident case for this monolithic adamantine knowledge that we would all reach as a final goal. So Chitra, I wanted to turn to you in terms of and responding to Rupert's remarks about you know, the, the kind of reductive process as well. Because you're dealing both, um, as you were saying, with sort of denying your expectations of a subject and also with looking at billions and billions of electrons and looking at this very small area. So there's that question as well for you. Is that to you a, a kind of reality that you're seeing those those very, very small electrons that you're looking at? Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting question, because I think that um there's different ways of approaching science. One is uh, reductionist and the other is emergent. I study emergent uh, forms of um, uh, physical phenomena. So in the reductionist way, indeed, one would think there's a theory of everything. At some point, you're going to gather enough information that you can write this theory and then you will be able to predict everything in the universe. Um, that's a very different way of knowing. So there, indeed, it's about reducing everything to its fundamentals. And once you know what the fundamental is, you can build everything back up. Uh, what I do is emergent forms of uh, physics, which is very different. And so there, what we say is, um, well, the, the way we approach um, doing experiments, discovering new phenomena, is that trillion, trillions of electrons uh, as many as the stars in the observable universe, um, in a milligram of material, when all of these interact together, uh, much the same way as you know all of us interact together, or neurons in the brain interact together, it's absurd to think that a collective phenomena can be reduced into the constituent particles and that those will explain what is happening collectively. Instead, what emergence is, is that when these trillion trillions of electrons come together, what we observe macroscopically is completely different from how each of the single particles behave. So yes, absolutely. I think reductionist ways of knowing, of doing science, um, I would strongly uh, push back against because I don't think that's, that's how uh, knowing occurs. But I don't think that science is reductionist. I think emergence is absolutely at the heart of what I do as an experimental physicist. I look at a quantum system with trillion, trillion electrons, and when I measure it, what they collectively do is nothing like what an individual electron does, and that is the portal to accessing new quantum forms of matter experimentally. So it doesn't have to be that one goes to the realm of beyond experiment and necessarily mysticism, to access emergent forms of behavior, those are accessed physically, experimentally. Thank you. And just a really quick follow-up. I just wanted to, as you were talking about the idea of an encounter and this revelation within quantum physics that the observer affects what's being observed. So, and is that something then that you deal with tangibly when you're researching? Is this something that's affecting your 
experimental process? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question about um, encounter. I think it's very much so there's, there's again, two ways of approaching how what, what happens when you do an experiment. One is starting with a model and the experiment being to test the model. So we all know when we think we know something's going to happen, you'll find what it is you think is going to happen. So uh, the idea that Rupert was talking about a prejudice and um, self-confirmation bias is often true just because when you start with a model, you expect that is what is going to be experimentally realized. Very often that's what you will find because you throw away all the rest of the information that is actually being, um, being given to you by the experiment. Um, on the other hand, um, what is what the encounter is about is if you go and saying it is unknown. Yes, I have prejudices where, wherein I think this might happen, but actually I need to um, I need to be attuned to what is happening in the experiment, knowing full well that what I thought is going to happen is likely not going to, and it always it always deviates in a way I didn't think it would. So even if I go in thinking, yeah, it's not going to do what I think it's going to do, I still think it's going to deviate in a certain way. And what it actually does is completely different. So that's what I mean by the encounter is if you go in knowing that it is an unknown beyond your imagination, then that's when you actually encounter what it is that's happening. Yes, great. Thank you. Tommy, I wanted to come in because you were talking about the rational tradition. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that's a way to talk about knowledge that in a way the totalizing claims being made by rationalism you or the rational method were what you were questioning. Well, you weren't saying let's dispense with it altogether. No, but no. But there's need for gaps in that. Is that yeah, part of yeah. the Yeah, I mean, we, we have to understand that human knowledge, both what we take to be the accumulation of facts or everything we know, uh, is incomplete. And whatever our best tools, our best way of inquiring into the world is, will always be limited. So in, in doing so, it gets rid of this kind of uh, strong claim of objectivity, right? Because objectivity presumes that there is a form of knowledge or reality that's unchanging, that is fixed, static, and that regardless of your social position, your location, et cetera, that you would have knowledge of this. Now, the rationalists are going to argue this is through rational philosophical processes. Medievalists and others like Plato would say this is through intuition, trying to grasp the forms, this kind of formal reality that, by the way, exists in kind of this ether well above anything we perceive, right? And you have people today that make very similar arguments, uh, even in trying to question the objective epistemological tradition, things like standpoint epistemology seem to interact with the world, saying that your social location gives you an almost immediate knowledge of your experience and the truth behind that. And I would want a much more mediated process because if we understand that knowledge itself is limited, that we're trying to grasp something that is very much contextual, something that's changing, something that if you did the same thing in a different location would have a completely different outcome effect or, or even catalyst, um, that requires us to have a certain kind of humility. And I dare not say the word relativism because I think that's a bad, it's a, it's a bad way of understanding this kind of gap that we have in human epistemology. But it is something that tries to get us to understand that just because we want to understand one outcome of knowledge or one notion of truth uh, doesn't mean that we can grasp it. And even if we can identify certain patterns of reality, knowing that every time you do X, it tends to lead to Y, that doesn't mean that it's always going to lead to Y. And part of the, part of the arrogance of the Western tradition 
is that in assuming that we've had reason that we've produced why a hundred or a thousand times and that it will always be why is that it misses the gap of that one time, that one existential qualifier where it won't be why. And rather than admitting that's an error and takes us to a whole new field of understanding different ways of knowing or understanding why X doesn't cause Y, we see that as an error, a mistake, or dare I say, people who arrived at that because they're not rational, right? That's the problem. That's the problem with both presupposing that we know what knowledge is, that we have an accumulation of various X's, and that the process by which we get to X is absolutely correct. Rather, we have to take a step back and say, well, maybe there are tentative and dare I say, cultural ways of formulating knowledge, different schemas by which different social groups, locations, et cetera, arrive at why or not yet why that are still valid. And in the Western tradition, I find that it's very rare that we're willing to engage that either intuitively or as a prospect in the history of philosophy or even experimentally. Thank you. And we're going to have in the next section, we'll talk more yes. about that power dynamic as well. And Rupert, before we turn to that, I want to turn to you because you've written in The Science Delusion precisely about what Tommy's describing, really a, a kind of refusal to accept novel theories within Western science and certain prevailing assumptions with which you disagree. So could you talk more about that, um, you know, this, this question of what happens when the scientific method excludes entire theories? Yes, well, there is this is a serious problem in, in, in science that um, it, the, the idea of scientific paradigms, a very well-known idea first put forward by Thomas Kuhn, uh, historian of science, is the idea there's a model of reality at any given time, and then in a scientific revolution, it's overthrown and it's replaced by another model of reality. The classic example is the um, medieval idea that the planets go around the Earth and all the stars, everything goes around the Earth, replaced by the idea that the Earth and the other planets are going around the Sun, the heliocentric model, which was a revolution in thought. And Darwin's evolutionary theory was a revolution in thought. Now, the only trouble is that Kuhn's idea of, of scientific revolutions, um, so you might think, well, these revolutions, each one's are sort of opening up, but actually, um, what's actually happened in science is that one sort of dictatorship or totalitarian system's been replaced by another. And uh, the idea has been that there's a global kind of science that applies everywhere in the world. The dominant paradigm for the last 150 years has been mechanistic materialism, um, which is what I discuss in my book, The Science Delusion. Uh, basically, the idea that matter's the only reality, consciousness is derived from matter, the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. God's nothing but an idea in human minds and therefore inside human heads. Um, mechanistic materialism has come to dominate all science over the entire world. If you study science in Africa, in South America, in China, in India, it's the same science that's taught in textbooks here. Um, the idea, there's no one thought system has ever conquered the whole world in the way that science has done. Christian missionaries tried to convert everyone to Christianity and failed, uh, but scientific missionaries have con converted virtually every country in the world to mechanistic materialism, at least when they're talking about science. And so uh, one of the problems has been that this view has become so dominant, so dogmatic, that it excludes inquiry within science, holds back inquiry in many areas of science, as I show in my book. I, can't go into the details now because there isn't time. Uh, but it's become a very restrictive framework. 
And I think one way forward, taking up one of Tommy's points, is to have a more pluralistic approach. And I think this should apply in science too. If there were more funding agencies pursuing quite different agendas, even different national science policies, uh, I think we'd get a richer and more interesting science. For example, if in India there was a really big emphasis on studying things that Indians know a lot more about than we do in Western countries, like the nature of conscious states, the way that physiological states can be changed through breathing practices, as, in, uh, as many yogis do, and there are some studies of this, but it's very niche and in, in the background. There's a great deal we could learn about human physiology and consciousness uh, through serious research in science. But I worked in India as a scientist, and I found that most of my colleagues there were not at all interested in local phenomena like that. They all wanted to get papers published in Nature and, and, and Science and do science the way it was done in the West, because that's what gives prestige. So I think that there's... Um, a much greater pluralism would be much better for science. And, and in fact, what we should realize is not science, it's the sciences. There are lots of different sciences, each with their own procedures. But at the moment, they are unified by this mechanistic materialist paradigm, yeah. uh, which we need to grow out of. Thank you, Rupert. That's great. So we'll move into the next area, which is um, this question that Tommy raised of power and the way that um, the question is, are theories of knowledge mistaken attempts to justify and make undeniable one's perspective? So, Tommy, if I turn to you first yes, on yeah. this, and you were talking about the idea that those who demur from a given view are deemed not mm. rational. Yes. So can you talk more about this and how you see this operating then in our society? Well, I think, I think Rupert gave a very good example of this, you know, in, in the dominance um, that you have a certain forms of Western knowledge or scientific thought uh, existing even outside of what traditionally was known as the West. Uh, there's incentives for us to, draw, to try to develop, if not describe the world through kind of universalized scientific processes. Uh, this is a big deal in analytic philosophy, uh, even continental philosophy or those who deviate from that tend to try to search for the universal, that which can be applied to all groups simultaneously. Uh, my work takes a different view. Uh, by looking at the specific cultural schemas of groups, uh, it suggests that groups arrive at reality through a co-authoring process, a kind of dual engagement, a dance, so to speak, uh, with what we take tentatively to be facts in the world. So if you think of something like the world is given, which takes a very kind of materialistic approach, right? Uh, if you think of a cultural logic perspective, it would be that the world is co-authored. There is something with the human perspective or the group's location that allows certain kinds of realities to be unfolded, birthed, et cetera, which is why you could have different notions of consciousness, say, that come up in the East that don't emerge in the West. It's a completely different dance with realities, the environment, the context, and different kinds of knowledge constructs. In doing so, you always admit that there's a certain form of indeterminacy in human knowledge acquisition, as well as the way that groups define themselves. This goes back to an earlier point that I made about Descartes and how the Western tradition presupposes that there's a certain human anthropology, a certain philosophical anthropology that gives you a certain knowledge outcome. If you view the Western tradition seriously, it would say that by being a rational human being, you automatically, are you through the right processes of reason, you have the capacity to know the fixed noble aim like X. 
But what we find is that there seems to be a whole lot of different exes around the world that deserve comparison. So social groups, social location, history, et cetera, definitely have an effect on knowledge. And those different ways of understanding those other forms of knowledge as truth very much have to do with power, very much have to do with economics, very much have to do with the kinds of impacts that prestigious institutions like Harvard or like Oxford have on how we perceive knowledge in the first place. I think one of the most important things to remember here is that what we now take of as philosophy was part of the humanist sciences. It was a way of trying to understand the qualitative, the effective, and the subjective place that human knowledge has in relationship to the larger world, and specifically the role that human knowledge and consciousness had in determining what the world was. Uh, that's largely been lost because we've now said that knowledge itself is, of course, limited. We've pointed out the biases. It's because you're white. It's because you're male. It's because you're rich, et cetera. These biases that seem to limit the universal scope of human knowledge. But what is not filled in of that is, well, then what are the processes of the specificity? If I happen to not be white and I'm black or I'm indigenous, what are the processes or context of that knowing historical location that produces other forms of knowledge that can be usable rather than just critique? What are the other ways of us comparing different outcomes of knowledge that allow us to understand both the indeterminacy and the contextualization of how certain things become contingent rather than universal, right? Those are the impacts that social group location, things like you know uh, race, gender, class, et cetera, have on how we actually come to know things. I think one of the largest problems that we have currently, however, is that these very same ideas we've had, these critiques that try to point out the limitation of knowledge, have now themselves become unquestionable. Where we've assumed now that, well, if you're this race, class, gender, et cetera, this is X type of knowledge, and that can't be questioned because one experienced it in such, such a way. I think that us verifying, comparing, having a pluralistic method is, is vitally important for us to understand not only the limitation of Western forms of knowledge, but also the possibility of, of, of creating plural forms of knowledge that can be taken in, in the same worth and same value. Thank you, Tommy. Um, Sachitra, if I could come to you as well, because you, you were talking about the metaphors of conquest and control. And again, with Tommy, what Tommy's saying about this notion that in a sense, the world out there is a given and then it's kind of found and over, overcome and clarified. So, and you're working particularly on, on quantum alchemy, which was a term I really enjoyed. Is that partly using that term as well? Is that an attempt to move away from more traditional ways of framing things then? Is that something you're deliberately doing? Um, yes. So, uh, yeah, uh, talking about quantum alchemy, essentially, um, it's the what quantum alchemy is about is that one can have the same trillion trillions of electrons forming a certain macroscopic ensemble, so collectively self-organizing into a certain phenomenon. But when you change the conditions, they shape shift and self-organize into a different phenomenon. So it's a little bit like water, steam, and ice. It's the same atoms, but they organize into water. You increase the temperature, they organize themselves into steam. These are very, very different phases. Um, so quantum uh, mechanically as well, one can have trillion, trillions of electrons collectively self-organizing into a certain quantum phase. One changes the conditions subtly and they self-organize into something else. And so quantum alchemy is a process by which, by changing the conditions, there's a transformation from one type of self-organization into another. And absolutely, it is. it goes with this idea of emergent forms being constantly new and changing and an infinity of um, branching 
forms of matter. So it's like a fractal where it goes on infinitely. You find you go to the border of what you think you know and you discover a new quantum phase. You go to the border of that, again, there's something new. So it's this proliferation. Um, but yeah, actually, um, one of the interesting things for me thinking about different ways of knowing is I think it was, it was obvious that um, in things that were more, say, sociological, yes, of course, if you were from a different part of the world, then um, ways of knowing should be different. It shouldn't be universal. But it seemed that in science, there was a universal and there was this, you know, um, scientific, the way one does science is rational. And surely it can't be that if different people do the same experiment, you're going to get different answers. So it was really challenging for me to contemplate what does it actually mean for science to be done in this Western mode? What is it that is happening that is being imposed by um, Western ways of knowing? And this idea of universalism that um, this way of conquest of knowing and that you arrive at the one answer, and that's a certain model, that's a fixed model. And actually that closes off other ways of knowing, other ways of accessing um, these emergent forms of matter that occur. And I think one of the things that is closed off, as Rupert was saying, is challenging, challenging the prevailing dogma, coming at it through other ways of knowing, I would say still experimentally, however, without the same fixed model. So as of now, there's a certain model and someone else does an experiment and says it doesn't fit, that's not going to be accepted within the prevailing dogma. And that, I think, is um, a fallout of this Western universal one way. And if everyone agrees on it, that's true. And I think that is what needs to be challenged in the same way as approaching it differently, different ways of knowing different voices. And I think it's a very similar way of coming, moving to different plural ways of knowing as opposed to a universal way of knowing. Thank you. That's great. Um, well, so I think, I mean, we've, we've got this last theme of the debate, which is, will we abandon the pursuit of objective knowledge? I think on this panel, we yes. kind of have. So maybe we've dealt with that. Um, but in that case, I'll take Satricha's point about other ways of knowing and Rupert. I mean, if we turn to then other possibilities beyond. You've advanced your own theory of morphic resonance. Mm -hmm. And with this, I wanted to ask you, I mean, clearly you wouldn't then say this is an objective theory and I've fathomed the truth of everything. So what are the claims then that can be made for a novel scientific theory within this adjusted framework that we're discussing? Well, um, in science, a, a hypothesis is a guess about the way things might be. And my idea of morphic resonance, which, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is the idea there's a kind of memory in nature that similar patterns get repeated uh, by an influence, a kind of resonant influence across time. Why it's controversial is that in existing science, you have to have material continuity, um, whereas I'm suggesting it's a kind of memory in nature um, that if people learn a new trick, uh, if people do Wordle early in the morning, because Wordle's just been published, uh, it may be harder to do than doing Wordle in the evening when the millions of people already, have already solved it. And that may be true. It seems to be true. Um, so it's a hypothesis which can be tested about the way things might be. And it's not a claim that this is true. It's a hypothesis of possibility that, that might be 
uh, a, a guide to the way things are. And if it turns out that nature really is based on habits rather than being run by fixed laws, which is one of the standard assumptions of mechanistic materialism, then um, we'd have uh, the idea that there are ways of changing the nature, the whole universe is the so-called laws of nature may be more like evolving habits. And then if we think in that way, we realize that in, in Indian thought and in Buddhist thought, which is derived from it, the idea of habits and cross-temporal causation has been part of that way of thinking for millennia. Um, and so uh, then you make contact with other ways of knowing and thinking. So it's an adventure, as 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 uh, Suchitra said. It's a, a it's a kind. Of, we don't know everything. We never will. But it's a kind of adventure of knowing. And I, my own view about morphic resonance is that it's a hypothesis that sheds a new light on inheritance, on memory. Says, for example, memory is not stored in the brain where people usually think it is, but we resonate with ourselves in the past across time. Controversial, counterintuitive even, um, but testable. Um, and gives us a new way of experiencing and, uh, the world and ourselves. Um, but it's not the definitive ultimate truth. And I dare say that if morphic resonance became more widely accepted, um, then there'd be other theories that would come along that would incorporate it within more general frameworks of understanding and so on. Um, so it's a process. And I think all of us agree that it's a process and we're not, there isn't a finished product called knowledge, um, even though if you're studying science in school and you have textbooks with facts you've got to learn for exams, you may get the impression that this is, you know, a fixed body of knowledge, you've got to learn it. Um, but actually, if you're practicing, or in, as all of us are exploring in our own ways, um, then um, it's never fixed, it's never complete. Yes. Tommy, can I bring you in on this? I was wondering as well in your own work, I mean, how then is it possible to discard bad thinking? And, you know, you said yourself that, that it's almost become a convention to question in certain ways. So there's a, is there a need, as we've heard from Suchitra as well, almost to constantly push into new novel areas Absolutely. of thought? Absolutely. And I, I you know, my, my work makes epistemological claims about the need for thinking of the propensity of something happening. Um, rather than presupposing that it's a fixed outcome. So even in, when we look at social sciences, the idea is not that we've discovered some truth, right? But rather that we've discovered a repetition or pattern that most likely tends to happen. It is a propensity towards a certain outcome that could change given some condition, be it known or unknown towards a certain inner consequence. And this is one of the, the things that I that I I'm really in debate with with other people who are in these areas, which assume that there's kind of this fixed knowledge in sociology or philosophy that if I take a certain standpoint or have a certain experience, that that produces a certain form of knowledge that can't be questioned because in it in and of itself can't be uh, subject to error because I've experienced it, right? But there is a need for verification, right? There is a need for experimentation. And just because one takes up those kinds of tools to try to verify or confirm what one experiences or what a group has experienced, what we're trying to then find out is, or, or trying to do is ask the tentative question of inquiry, well, what is most likely to happen given this condition, given these elements, et cetera. So I really do like the knowledge of habit that you're reaching back to more so from pragmatists, right? <laughs> um, you know, in, in the United States that, that's trying to formulate the ways things behave. And this is what I kind of pointed to initially, right? Our, our search for knowledge is more about 
understanding the conditions and context that give the birth and lead to the demise of what we think of as truth or fact. So we're in a constant process that's trying to falsify what we take to be universalizable. And those are the kinds of epistemological, I guess, methods are, are, I would say, bombs that we need to put into our ways of knowing so we do not make the mistake of a kind of stasis or universalization that we then use to judge other groups and other aspects of human inquiry. So error and understanding the need to falsify what we take as deciding what is true uh, is key to us actually having a good scientific method or even the very basis of philosophical inquiry, in my view. Great. Yes. Yeah. And so, Chicha, do you want to come in on this, this question? I was thinking of Feynman as well saying, you know, all science is uncertain. And if you're trying to create novel theories, you have to leave the door ajar. So that, I guess, is th th that's clearly the process you've evinced with that question again of how do you then um, ascertain that something doesn't work as a theory? Is that through experiment then? You are using yeah. that empirical data. Yeah, it's, it's through experiment. And um I think that I, I really like uh, Tommy's point about the thing that challenged the original dogma itself becoming dogma and so on. Um, and I think in terms of the experimentation, I think something that I think we always need to keep hold of is the idea of constantly challenging and constantly being in a place that isn't comfortable. I think when we're in a place where we think we know it is a place where, yeah, everyone knows we agree we're all comfortable where we are. And the questioning is always going to be a place of discomfort because one, everything you thought you knew is going to be challenged and appended and everything everyone else thinks they know is going to be challenged by what it is you're coming up with. So I think in the questing, in the experimenting, it is always a question of, being willing to be in a place of unfamiliarity, of discomfort. And I think it's very similar to, um, uh, there was, I think it was um, Chino Achebe who said, you know, don't believe those who say don't put politics in your art. The people who say that are the ones who are in positions of power and who are totally happy for things to stay the way they are. And I think it's, it's no different in science or in art or what, whatever it is you pursue. There's no such thing of, objectively doing an experiment, the experiment will tell you the answer. It has to be that you're constantly questioning, challenging, willing, be willing to put yourself in a place of discomfort, of uncertainty, of unfamiliarity. And I think that's a very different way of doing science than the one which is we're going to build up knowing and we're going to arrive at this complete finite picture of knowledge. I think that's one where you're more comfortable with a finite body of knowledge you've arrived at as opposed to constantly knowing that you're never going to be comfortable. And it's in the process of questioning, of putting yourself at the edge where it's not comfortable. That is the only way to uh, encounter the unknown. Thank you all very much for coming and to thank our brilliant speakers. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's debate, don't forget to leave a like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.